Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Our guest today is Brent Colburn, a fall 2015 fellow at the Institute of Politics here at Harvard Kennedy School. Brent previously served as assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs and was National Communications Director for President Obama's re-election campaign. Brent, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate being here. You presided over communications staffs Mm -hmm. in top roles, both in a national election as well as, uh, you know, a major, major government institution in the Department of Defense. Is that an entirely, entirely different role doing the kind of same job for two very different organizations? Sure. It's a good question. Um, And there are obviously very similar toolboxes in terms of the types of techniques and tactics you would use to help forward strategies in both instances. Uh, The biggest difference, and this is a a strange thing to say, and it, it kind of strikes people as odd when they first hear it, but I think it makes a lot of sense, is that campaigns are much simpler than governing, right? Uh, and with all the noise and attention that they get this time of year, that seems a little bit, um, you know, uh, um, off from what you may see in the news and what pundits want you to believe. But elections are very simple, right? You have one goal, which is to get more people to show up on election day and vote for your candidate than for the opponent. Uh, and so, from a planning and execution perspective, that gives you a very um, a clear yardstick to measure all of your choices against, right? So Mm -hmm. when you look at something, you can decide, should we comment on this or should we not? How is this going to impact us getting votes? Now, there's stuff that rolls up under that in terms of making sure people volunteer for you, reputational management, getting people to to give money to the campaign. But again, all of that flows towards one goal. Mm -hmm. Um, In reality, when you're in government, particularly someplace like the Defense Department uh, or the folks over at the White House, you're balancing a series of priorities over a much longer uh, uh, time horizon, right? You don't have that same deadline that Election Day gives you, so you're constantly dealing with kind of over-the-horizon impacts, second and third uh, uh, order impacts of the decisions that you make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can wake up in the morning and think that you're going to be talking about um, what's going on in the Ukraine, and then obviously something happens in Syria, and uh, and your entire day is out the window, and you've shifted to a different priority. So, right. um, and then size and scope are different. You know, we think of elections in this country as large, and they are larger and more expensive than almost anywhere else in the in the world. But when you're working in a place like the Defense Department, there's 3.2 million employees. If you add up everybody, including the reservists and the National Guard, over 10,000 people that are doing public affairs work somewhere in the armed forces uh, or in the civilian side of of the Defense Department. And that just dwarfs what even a a national campaign looks like in this Mm -hmm. country. Now, campaigns, I know they're, they're, they have a lot of different elements, mm-hmm. but I tend to think of them as communications-driven sure. uh, you know, organizations. Obviously, the Department of Defense is not a communications-driven yeah. organization. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the Department of Defense, uh, where, where does communications come mm-hmm. into play in yeah. the general decision-making? I, I think that's right, you know, not to oversimplify things, but at the end of the day, you know, the most successful uh, politician or the person that wins a campaign is the one who, you know, most effectively tells their story, right? And you're seeing a lot of interesting interplay happening on the Republican side right now, and you have 10, 12 people trying to tell their story at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also do have that dynamic of having opponents, right? And, and sure, you have... Um, 
stakeholders that may be for or against you when you're in a place like the Defense Department. But it's not that same clear, I'm telling a story about myself while telling a a most likely negative story about somebody else at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in organizations, both in government and outside of government that are smart, public affairs or communications is baked in from the beginning. And it's, it, you know, the cake analogy actually works really well here, right? You can do public affairs one of two ways. You can make it part of the mix, so you can have the public affairs people in the room from the beginning of a decision-making process uh, and make sure that you are kind of testing whatever policies uh, or actions you're going to take against the public affairs reactions or the public affairs advice of your experts. And again, that doesn't mean you're not making decisions or making decisions based on public affairs, but you need that perspective as you're figuring out timing, tone, um, how you're going to talk about things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you can do what unfortunately too many organizations do, which is kind of think of public affairs as the icing on the cake, right? So you you bake this policy and then you have to make it look pretty, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the first works a lot better than the second. I think it's been kind of a hallmark of this administration, uh, the Obama administration. It's definitely the way we did business, both under uh, Secretaries Hagel and Secretary Carter uh, at the Defense Department. And and that little differentiation can make a really big difference when it comes to how effective your policies end up being, especially Mm -hmm. in today's world, right? I mean, you know, there's no longer a line. I mean, people talk about it being blurred. I don't think it even exists between kind of public internal deliberations and uh, uh, the external um, explanation of a policy or a decision that you make. Um, so you have to have public affairs in there from from the very beginning. Do you think it's natural for government agencies to think about public affairs as, you know, baked into that mix? Or yeah. is that something that really needs to come from the top from whoever is It's elected? evolving, right? You know, I think that, you know, there's generational uh, change that's taking place within, uh, at least at the federal level, within government. Um, and it takes a while. Look, I mean, you know, because it is a hierarchical system, particularly a place like the military, um, you do have leadership that tends to be, um, have come of age in an era that was kind of pre-social media, uh, pre-24-hour news cycle. But some of those folks are starting to age out of those roles, and you're getting more people in those roles who at least have some connectivity to the media and information environment that we live in today. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, as those leaders come of age, you're going to see more of a bias towards baking in the public affairs functions. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not a struggle. Uh, You know, um, there are still a lot of people throughout the government that I think would uh, prefer to just put their heads down and and issue their policies and directives and execute on their, uh, their tasks without ever thinking about public affairs. But that's just not realistic. And it's also, it's just not, um, you know, I have a philosophical problem with that way of doing business. Um, you know, this is your government, right? Uh, you know, it is paid for by, by tax dollars. The, uh, you know, you have every right to know what's going on there. So uh, transparency isn't just about the press. It isn't just about uh, trying to tell your story to those types of stakeholders. I think it's a requirement when it comes down to uh, making sure citizens know what's going on inside their government. Mm-hmm. Over the last uh, year or so, we've had several interviews um, with uh, Stephen Goldsmith, Matt Lira, um, and and a few others that have talked about this kind of uh, how campaigns tend to be entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that entrepreneurial spirit can um, exist in government? Yeah. You know, it's it's a good it's a good question and it's a tension that absolutely exists as someone who's worked on kind of both sides of that fence. You know, I think one thing to recognize about campaigns though is that uh, campaigns are entrepreneurial because they have to be entrepreneurial, right? Mm-hmm. It's not some, you know, um, 
you know, altruistic virtue that campaign people bring to the table. You know, I worked for uh, Howard Dean in 2003 and 2004, and you know, we very much spearheaded the use of uh, online fundraising using um, digital tools to communicate. You know, at the time, it's, it sounds so uh, ancient now, but it was meetups and blogs, right? It wasn't, it wasn't Twitter and Facebook and the tools we have today. They didn't exist. They then. didn't exist. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right. But but we use those tools. You know, we were lucky to have some very creative people on our staff, but at the end of the day, we used those tools because we had a very, uh, at the beginning of the campaign, had a, a very um, uh, modest budget. Uh, it was a way that we felt we could increase our reach uh, and do it at a low cost to the types of people that we thought would support us. Mm-hmm. So again, it was, a, it was as much a decision of necessity as it was a decision of um, foresight. Right mm-hmm. now, uh, and, and again, because you need to do everything you can by election day to have spent every dollar you have to get as many people to show up and vote for you as possible. Right? right. Uh, you know, government doesn't have that same externality on it. Um, the other thing people forget it's, it's easy to point a finger at government as being this laborious, um, slow-changing uh, set of institutions. And and look, there is there is truth in that. But you know, everything that makes government slower, everything that makes things a little bit harder, it's almost always an unintended consequence of a good idea, right? So it was a protection that was put in place because someone had abused something. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an attempt to uh, to instill kind of our values into, um, uh, into how we do business, right? Sure. The problem is all of these unintended consequences and all these good intentions start layering onto each other and become this kind of, uh, this, this um, web of uh, you know, I'm going to mix my analogies here, but you know, it's hoop after hoop after hoop after hoop. Mm-hmm. Now, in, you know, in terms of our ability to bring an entrepreneurial spirit into uh, government, look, I, you know, I give the president a lot of credit. Uh, he's trying to do that with the National Digital Service. Uh, I give um, Secretary Carter, uh, who is, uh, you know, near and dear to folks here at the Kennedy School uh, and is currently over at DOD, a lot of credit. Uh, another former boss of mine, I was the chief of staff at Housing and Urban Development for a while, Sean Donovan, has tried to do this quite a bit. Um, you know, the problem, though, is that the civil service rules and restrictions make it difficult um, not only to instill that spirit within an organization, but to create the kind of flexibility in your workforce that exists in the private sector that allows that to happen. So how do you bring smart people into government? How do you allow people to have more flexible career paths while mm-hmm. still protecting the values that we have in our civil service, right? Um, you know, if I, if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be making a lot more money than I am now. Um, but uh, it's well, a challenge every single day. You mentioned uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. Uh, he's actually made a pretty big deal about uh, going to Silicon Valley and yep. trying to recruit people, um, especially to fight cyber threats and all of that. Um, but that's been a real impediment, is that government traditionally doesn't have the kind of flexibility that a you know Silicon Valley startup or mm-hmm. even a, you know, a company like Google has. Yep. Um, do you see the, do you see that changing? Yeah, you know, it's tough. Civil service reform is a very hard set of issues. Uh, you know, it's a leadership issue. I think it's, um, you know, uh, uh, Secretary Carter should be applauded for, uh, for making those efforts. He's not the only one doing it. Um, but it's going to take time. And, you know, unfortunately, civil service reform, like any type of structural government reform is going to take, you know, Republicans and Democrats working together, which is not, uh, you know, exactly our strong suit right now as a government. Um, the thing we can change, though, and this is more of a cultural change, is, you know, Craig Fugate, who's the head uh, of FEMA and has been there since uh, the beginning of the administration, uh, is a fantastic leader and I think is a, a great example of how leadership really matters in this area. You know, he spent the first few years at FEMA uh, 
hammering away on this idea of changing the uh, way we look at problems from um, you know, process driven to outcome driven, right? So start with what you're trying to get to and then work backwards. As much as he spent it uh, trying to change, uh, you know, kind of the institutional structure of a place that had not been performing at the level that it, it needs to. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the disaster space is a great place because you do have this externality, right? You do have an immediacy to problems that allows you to make some cultural change. Sure. But, you know, I think we could use more of that kind of attitude across the government. Um, you know, look, if we're willing to to be very clear about the outcomes we want, as kind of audacious as they may sound, you're going to be much more likely to get to them and not get bogged down by the process. You know, I also found it's, it's you know, I learned this from Craig as well, is that, you know, you would go in, you go into these agencies and, and they're full of some of the best people you're ever going to work with. But there are people that uh, oftentimes aren't even aware of the level of constraint that they have. And by that, I mean, you know, you would go and sit in a meeting and someone would tell you, well, we have to do it that way. And you would say, well, why do we have to do it that way, right? Uh, and, you know, is that a law? Is that a regulation? And what you would find out is, you know, there's this hierarchy basically of law, right, regulation, mm-hmm. policy. Each one of those things is, is a little bit easier to change. And then that hierarchy eventually gets down to standard operating procedure, common practice. And you would find uh, employees who thought that they had to do things a certain way when the reality was we'd just been doing it that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. So with the right leadership, you can break through some of these um some of these barriers, some of the barriers aren't quite as uh, as strong as you think they are. So, mm-hmm. Recently, the uh, president announced, or actually, I don't know if it was the president or the Department of Defense mm-hmm. who actually made the announcement, uh, but it was announced that uh, we would be sending special forces mm-hmm. troops to Syria. Obviously, Syria has been going on for a long time, uh, and this is the first time that we're having officially boots on the ground. Sure, um, That's a huge announcement for an organization like the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. You were talking before about being in the mix. Obviously, you weren't there when <laughs> this was right, all being right. discussed, but... What's that process? I mean, sure. if we were from the outside looking in, what what would it have been like? Yeah, so um, you know, a number of things happen. You know, and the military is a is a unique place, and there's kind of a, a dual leadership. There's a dual um, um, command structure that ultimately goes up through the Secretary of Defense, right? But the uh, the head. Um, a uniformed officer in this country is uh, the chairman of the Joint Staff, um, uh, currently a, a, an incredibly uh, impressive um, Marine general named General Dumford, a uh, great guy. And, uh, you know, their job is really to, uh, in consultation with the policy team that works for the Secretary of Defense, generate military options for the president. In this case, that comes up through uh, what they call a combatant command, uh, in this case, CENTCOM, Central Command, which is in charge geographically uh, of the area that includes Syria. So basically the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously you can imagine a very busy command over the last 15 years. Um, You know, so they would uh, be given, you know, a tasking from the president or from the head of the National Security Council to come up with options of how we can achieve certain goals militarily, in this case in Syria. They would work those options and then they would present them to the president through a very formal structure that comes up through the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I will tell you for folks that probably aren't exposed to this on a a regular basis, on the national security side of the house, it it is an incredibly uh, structured process that allows for a lot of input from across uh, the federal family, right? Obviously, the State Department has huge uh, equities in this, given that uh, any movement militarily in that region has huge uh, impl- implications in terms of sure. our foreign policy. Uh, you know, others who are doing this type of work, USAID, other pieces of the government would have uh, would have opinions. 
Um, so it goes up, and then once a decision is, is made, uh, you're kind of to the announcement phase of things. Mm-hmm. And now, again, you want at every stage of that process to have some sort of public affairs voice. Uh, at the DOD, what that means is in those meetings where the joint staff is discussing these options with the secretary, at least when I was there, we always had a seat at the table. And again, uh, a couple reasons for that. One is, uh, you know, the Pentagon's a big place. Um, we have a, a press corps that's indigenous, right? So that means they live inside the Pentagon. Uh, they mm-hmm. also have that at the State Department, obviously, at the White House. And those reporters are very well sourced. So you need to make sure as the public affairs team, you know everything there is to know within reason uh, so that if you get asked by a reporter, you can make sure that you're giving them a proper steer on things and not letting rumors become facts, right? Sure. It also allows you to have a little bit of say into how your sequence how these things are announced. Um, And that's a very important piece. Um, There's a lot of stakeholders that are involved in this, Congress being obviously one of the biggest. The units that will be moved is a big one. You don't want folks uh, and families of service members finding out from the press that they're going to be sent overseas. Mm -hmm. So as we got closer to a decision point, uh, the DOD team would, in conjunction with the national security staff's um, press team, which is run by uh, a great guy named Ben Rhodes, uh, would come up with a plan, right? Uh, sounds simple, but you would basically put down on paper, uh, you know, a series of events uh, that would uh, transpire over a very short amount of time uh, where you are notifying different stakeholders, including members of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, leading up to some sort of public announcement. Now, and again, this goes back to the toolbox idea we talked about earlier with um, uh, campaigns versus the uh, the government, you have all the same tools, right? You can announce right. things through a written statement. You can do it from a podium. You can have uh, a principal like the Secretary of Defense uh, do it in a public space in a speech, right? You have all of those things. Mm-hmm. So a determination will be made at what level you needed to make this announcement. And then, you know, there's uh, there's the planning, there's the uh, actual announcement, then there's all the stuff that happens after the announcement. Right. So, you know, you have to explain what you just said, right? So that's when the real interaction with the press corps takes place mm-hmm. in terms of making sure they have the facts and access to experts that can help them understand, you know, the theory of the case that went into this particular decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's complicated, you know, and, and um, in, in the, a world where information moves as quickly as it does move, um, you know, we were constantly trying to make sure we were ahead of the moving pieces that went into any of these announcements, right? Mm-hmm. And again, think about just that special operations decision. Um, you know, again, I wasn't there for it, but I can I have a pretty good sense of who the, the actors would have been and who the pieces are. You're talking multiple commands across a large geographic area, including people that are on the ground in the Middle East. Reporters are in all of those places. Social and digital media means that you know a piece of information can move pretty quickly anywhere in the world these days. So, uh, so it's a it's a you know keeping discipline on that process is uh, definitely kind of um, one of the toughest things that you do when you are managing that type of public affairs team and that type of public affairs process. Has that new dynamic with all these new ways of uh, reporting, you know, not just from reporters but social media, et cetera, uh, has that substantially changed that process? Yeah, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, it, it what hasn't changed. Um, um, you know, we tend to think of the time we live in as particularly revolutionary, right? And I, and I think it, to some degree that's a fair assessment. You know, um, I graduated high school in 1994. I would say I had a pretty similar experience to a kid that graduated in 1984, 1974. I'd say a kid uh, who graduated in 2004 with a, you know, a, a computer in their bedroom and access to all the world's information from uh, their from their fingertips probably had a slightly different experience than I did. So this has been a pretty fundamental shift. 
But these are also just new tools to do the same job, just like the telephone was a new tool and FDR's fireside chats were a new tool. So um, the values underneath it need to stay the same. And for us, that's transparency, uh, honesty in terms of how we deal with folks in the press corps and with the public, um, completeness of information, being as quick as we can with getting information out. What it has done, though, is it has um, it's sped everything up, right? Uh, and, and I think the downside of the world that we live in is that it has um, decreased the chance for contemplation and planning, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can have this beautiful plan, and at the drop of a hat, you know, somebody, uh, uh, you know, um, somebody gets a set of orders that they're going overseas and puts up on their Facebook page to their friends and family that they're being deployed to Syria, that somehow gets picked up by a member of the press and all of a sudden we're off to the races no matter how great our plan is. So mm-hmm. it does put a premium on flexibility um, and uh, being able to manage information as much as, uh, uh, as reveal information as we probably used to do. Well, Brent Colburn uh, is a fall 2015 fellow at the Institute of Politics. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And, of course, to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 